as we look here. Uh, the theme will be, again, as we were saying, uh, looking at how the psalm opens. We understand the book of Psalms to particularly be a meditation book of the Torah, the law of God. And then the second psalm opens up this whole caveat or this vista or window in which it is our introduction to the king who should rule the nations, all the world. And that, that is meditation on God's law, but by that law in which he will rule the whole world by his principal king, the anointed, that that opens up the whole book of Psalms. If you're looking at that theme and you understand Psalm 1 and you understand Psalm 2, then every psalm makes sense. And so here we are in Psalm 8, finding this theme again. We see God in all of creation. This is oftentimes categorized as a creation psalm or a psalm of simple praise. Psalms of praise in the Bible are saying, there's nothing wrong in the world and everything I look at is absolutely amazing and I have to sing. It's a good place to be. And that's really what's going on here. It says this. Uh, to the choir master, according to the getith, him, getith uh, of Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field. And the birds of heaven. And the fish of the sea. And whatever passes along the paths of the sea. As we began, we end. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Simple. It's a profound praise to simply do nothing more and turn the head up and simply look around. This will require the putting away of the smartphone and clearing your schedule, and just for a moment breathing fresh again to say, wow, this life thing's a pretty good deal. It's amazing what he's done. This psalm of praise, just looking at the actual creation, almost as if you could, almost as if you could for the first time. Remember the reality of how children really are, particularly even thinking on Mother's Day, that the theme, particularly the sermon, and even in the psalm, is that there is a childlike wisdom uh, to find similarities or likenesses in the world. That there's a, there's a type of wisdom that's childlike, that, that has an ability to look at the world with fresh eyes, to look at the world um, from a different angle and uh, not be 30 or 40 or 50 years old and not 
uh, think, well, that is the way things are. Because there's the beauty to the wisdom that children have is that they don't know how anything is. So everything's amazing and majestic. Majestic. See, these psalms are psalms for meditation, particularly to ask the big questions. That's what meditations are. And so the big question here in the psalm is, what is God? And what is man? Those are the two big questions. A psalm given to us for meditation. Who is God and who is man? You can't really get more broad or expansive than this. And we're encouraged to understand that there is no other way to know that except to become like a small child. That if you think you have your preconceived or uh, oriented mind, your notions of actually how you think you understand that answer, there's a certain childlike humility to sit under the Word of God. To let the Word of God speak down to you. To humiliate you and treat you as a child. Only in that point will you actually begin to gain the wisdom that these psalms are inviting us to meditate on. I mean, that's exactly how Jesus put it. So like in Matthew 18, his disciples were adults, and they were thinking, who's the greatest among us? And they fought with one another. And then Jesus pulled a child aside. And he put the child next to him, and he particularly said, unless you become like these little children, like these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. See, there's something childlike to asking these kind of questions. Because the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, within our own selves, we don't know exactly really who we are. And we sure cannot actually grasp or comprehend this idea of what we say is God. It's a mystery. Every hundred years we redefine what humanity is. Right now we're in the introspective conscious of the West. And um, what is Carl Truman's book? Uh, the Liberty or the Mind? That we're the autonomous self. We're defining our own identity sexually and whatnot. And transhumanism and transsexualism or whatever. The fact is in a hundred years everyone's going to think we're crazy and we'll be a footnote in a history book. But that's the case for every hundred years. Because apart from God's wisdom, we really don't know who we are. So to ask the question, who is God or who is man, the reality comes is that we must be children, be quiet, and listen, and learn, and see the world with fresh eyes to understand it's amazing and mysterious. See, the order of the questions are important. So what we're saying is, and I made this point, if you were with us last week, um, where I said, why do we have ten fingers? And you all laughed at me and my feelings were hurt. <laughs> See, you did it again. Look at you guys, you did it again. No, but that is a childlike question, isn't it? You know how your kids ask you these questions, you're like, quit asking me why, because at the po a certain point, I don't know. Like, that's the, that's the kind of mentality of meditation. That's the right approach to approach the Word of God. Why do we have ten fingers? 
Why do? Why did God give us one mouth and two ears? For James says, you know, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Makes sense. Why, on Mother's Day, we ask, do we beget? Why do the storks not drop the babies by the front door? What is it the way God has made this world? Let's look at the world like children once more and say, where do babies come from? Why is it this way for Mother's Day that we would beget from our own nature? Why do their eye color match mine? Why does the curve of their lip look so similar to my wife's? That's a good question to ask. See, asking the question is good. Asking them in the wrong order, well, that could be a problem. We don't ask, what is man? And now, therefore, what is God? That order is wrong. We have to ask, as the psalm does, here is who God is. Now, now you know that here is who man is. See, if you get the questions wrong in the wrong order, things can go bad. And I have a helpful illustration for this that I think would be beneficial for all of us in the church. Considering if you do not know Colin and Nikki Malloy here in this church, and you have the privilege to get to meet them maybe after the service or in the uh, weeks or months ahead, Nikki's very fond of telling the story about me. And I would like to just get ahead of her and tell you all now. <laughs> it's about the problem of asking good questions but in the wrong order. So, Colin and Nikki, only about a year or so ago, were engaged and they were dating. But even before that, they were just getting to know each other. And so I was speaking with Colin back then, and he said, I'm speaking to this amazing woman. She's wonderful. The problem is, though, there's always, you know, as you're dating, figuring out the lay of the land, she comes from like a oneness Pentecostal church, uh, which denies the Trinity. And and Colin and I were talking, and I said, that's a problem. That's, we sh- you should talk about that over time as you're, as you're dating. And um, so one of these days, as they're talking and getting to know each other, good pastor following up with Colin, called him. said, Colin, how are you doing? And, and considering this dating uh, venture he's on, how is the oneness woman? And uh, that's not a bad pastoral question. And I was a little proud of myself for how clever that word fell off the tongue. It was good. Everything was good. I'm being a good pastor. I'm being a little poetic. Being accurate with my words. She's a woman. Oneness. Um, and there was a long pause on the phone. And, uh, and he said, oh, it's going well. We're in the car together and you're on speaker. <laughs> and I uh, felt like about 10 minutes. It's probably only about a couple seconds. And I uh, said, well, that's good. <laughs> and I said, hey, Nikki, can you hear me? And that's how I was introduced to Nikki. I never met her yet. Um, and uh, obviously, Nikki has a sense of humor because she's here today. And everything went wonderfully. But the question is, not a bad question. Would have been good to get him in the right order. Like, hello, Colin. Am I on speaker? <laughs> and, hello, Colin, is anyone in the car with you? That would have helped. 
Right? Getting the order is important in these questions. Now we can laugh at that, and I'm glad we can all laugh at my expense. I think it's part of my job description pastorally. But the non-laughing matter in the psalm is this. If you get these questions wrong, that is in the wrong order, you, you won't see anything. You won't have any wisdom right, for these psalms to give us wisdom. See, if you ask the question first, who is man? Like, let me look here and see what this person's doing. And let me do anthropology. And let me study civilizations and history. And then I'll find out what man is. And you know what I'll do? I'll do comparative religious studies in university. That's what I'll do. I'll look at all the religions of all humanity through all history. And I'll culminate them and find qualities or similarities. And then I'll start to realize that there's this thing called God. And it's a common religious uh, seed within all the civilizations. We'll call it religion. See, if you do that, you get a decent question in the wrong order, starting with man. You'll either end up historically as a pagan, or in a modern sense, an atheist. Because you will think either one of two ways. You will say, no, 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 you see, the gods, as the ancients said, were pretty much foolish superheroes. Zeus is just a very big man who also happens to do things with lightning bolts. Right? You, will, you will project humanity, what you deem to be human, and um, elevate it and emanate it a little higher to um, a false god that kind of is like a man and a quasi-humanity. That is ancient religion psychology. It starts down here, and we project it up to say the gods are like this. And there's a god over the ocean, and there's a god over the clouds, and they're all like us, and they, they incest, and they fight each other, and they murder each other, and it's like watching a soap opera, but these are the gods we worship. Right? They're very man-like, but just a little smarter, a little wiser. So you could be a pagan if you ask the question first. What is man? Okay, now what is God? The modern problem, of course, in our age is... The question order still remains. What is man? Oh, man is this. Man is that. Man is wise. Man can find unity in things. Man can abstract ideas. And then the modern atheist says, therefore, God is just an imagination of the mind. All civilizations are just reasoning upward to this ideal of what they think could be a God, but they actually don't have a real God. It's just a product of the human mind. See, they start in the human mind, and then, therefore, they have to end in the human mind. But the beauty of this psalm, the wisdom of this psalm, is saying, what if God is not the product of your mind? What if you are the product of his mind? That is to say, what if all of this is not actually, absolutely real? What if you could look at your hand again and realize that this is real, but not absolutely? That is, there is only one true, real, independent God who derives his power, his aseity, from no one. He is real. Everything here is temporal, contingent, relying upon his rock of foundation. That there is nothing here that is actually eternal. There is nothing here that actually could be said to be absolute, real. And therefore us, God, in considering us, that is, in considering the very creation and making everything the way he did, 
emanated from his mind to make this world this way. See how it flips? If you know who God is, then you actually can speak to say, now who am I? Why am I here? And what are these things attached to me? Because we know in the first stage of our development, as small little children, you eventually realize that these hands are attached to you. And then to be reborn, that is in your first birth, you start to develop consciousness and you're like, oh, these are my hands. But Jesus said, that's not enough. You need to be born from above. You need not only understand that these are your hands in the sense that they're attached to you, but then you need to be reborn to say, these actually aren't my hands and none of this is mine and I'm a product of God's mind and I must worship him and give him all glory as the psalm starts, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That you see the whole world as the eyes of a child and you can't do anything except say, of course he is wonderful and marvelous. That's the beauty of this. The beauty of asking the question first, who is God? See, the psalm starts in that way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That beautiful word, majesty in the Hebrew. It means that it's oftentimes in the scriptures given to kings, those who are like us and humans, but a little bit higher, a little bit more powerful, a little bit more honorable. But now given to God to say, you, as a royal attribute, are mighty, noble, excellent, impressive, exalted, great, awesome, elevated, sublime, lofty, distinguished. There is something majestic to God that he is different than us. He is higher than us. He is absolute. He is independent. He is distinct and glorious. And that is, it is over all the heavens, the verse says. You have set your glory above the heavens. That is, the highest we can go, you are higher. You are supreme. You are infinite in your perfections. Not just infinite as in the way we think of numbers from one to however high you can count. But I mean infinite and is the perfections, the beauties of everything that is what we wanted in the Greek gods. What you want in yourself when you look in the mirror and you say you're older. Or you say my potentiality is waned. And you say I can't do what I used to do. Or I don't have the money I want to have. Or I don't have the house I want to have. And you just wish, I wish I could have more. I wish I could be healthier. I wish I could be more active. I wish I could have more money. I wish I could have more freedom. I wish I could go on more trips. I wish I could be God. Yes, all those things we like, which we might call perfections, they actually are perfections in him in his one absolute power his unbreakable freedom to do whatever he wants he is high and above and we are not see that freedom of God that power of God it is above the highest heavens we're told as the scriptures open in Genesis that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth many have pointed out that first verse when it says God created the heavens and the earth the first heavens there mentioned are not even the visible heavens because only later on, you find him taking in the next verse, the earth was without form and void and darkness over the surface of the deep. And the expanse separated the waters above from the waters below. The oceans below, the clouds above, there was an expanse to separate them. And it says in Genesis 1-7, and that was called the heavens. That is, there's a visible heavens. There's a place between the two waters. But at the very beginning of Genesis, we're also told that God made the heavens and the earth. That is, an unseen realm, a higher heaven, a spiritual place, in which God supersedes even that. As Colossians 1.16 says, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, all thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, and powers, they were all created through him and for him. Exodus, Reditus, everything came from him, and it is all. Guaranteed as the decree was for it to go out, it will all come back. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of accounting. There will be a day in which he will roll the creation up as a garment. He will break it down as if it were a tent. And he will bring it all back to himself. That he is that kind of God. It's a failure to even try to find the word, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And for me to even try to grab that. But the reality of him being absolutely free. That he is above the highest heavens. And this majesty for him, this majesty for our God, the one true and living God, is that he has dignity particularly, and this is what's so beautiful for us, he has dignity in his dominion. That is, as he exercises sovereign power and dominion over the works of his hands, his creation, that is his honor, his glory, his dignity. It go, the creation goes out and he sovereignly procures it, and he actually upholds it. And what it does is it returns back to him greater measures of glory from the glory that came from him. And that's how the psalm starts off, of course, to the, the whole point of the psalm. You could say the whole point of creation in one sense was for Psalm 8 to get to this point so that there would be create creatures like you and I, even this morning, that could sing, Lord, you are majestic. And if you didn't make us all this way and do everything this way, there would be no one to tell you how awesome you are. And that's the point. It was all for that. You could say the whole point of creation was for us to sing Psalm 8. That we could come back and say, My Lord, look at my hands. Look at this life you've given me. Look at the children I have. Look at my two legs. I can walk wherever I want. I breathe and smell the flowers. And I know it's dwindling and I know it's going away. But it is marvelous what you have done. You need fresh eyes. If you struggle with depression, struggle, feel like you're missing out and Life isn't the way it should be. All you've got to do is remember that kids don't think that way. They're too young yet. You could give them a candy wrapper. And they'll love it for at least ten minutes. Like, there's a freedom to just realize who you are. And quit asking who you are before you first say, Oh Lord, how majestic is this whole thing? The good and the bad. That you're with me in it all. See, there's childlike similarities to all of this. God speaks of him creating as laying a foundation to the earth. Or stretching a line upon. Or sinking the bases and laying them in the ocean. That's how he supports the world. Psalm 104. He lays the beams in its chambers upon the waters. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Now you see, the wisdom of all this, how do we know who God is? How do we know who we are? Childlike similarity. Enter into childlike similarity. No, it is not true that the world is a tent. It is not true that the land we walk on is actually founded by real pillars. See, he's speaking to us like a child. He's saying, do you know how I made the world? Well, it's kind of like how you play with your Legos. Or it's kind of like how you build up a tower with your blocks. See, he's speaking to us childlike. Which doesn't mean it's not true. He's not lying. But he's saying something that at least we can understand. At least we can relate to. 
famous analogy, if you were with us last week, was my analogy of an analogy, which is to play and go fish with the children. They love finding the match. That's all it is. There are certain ways in which we are not like God, in which God simply says, no, there's no match. But there are some ways in which the cards line up, in which we are analogous to him, in which we can say, you are like this and I am like this. And now because I know you, I know a little of me. The childlike similarities go all the way higher to the heavens. That is, considering Mother's Day. I remember, perhaps you've had the experience, of being a child in your bedroom. And your mother came and put some sticky tack on some glow-in-the-dark stars and placed them on your ceiling. That's just so beautiful. It points everything in the psalm. Because that's how it is for children. The stars are actually a little scary. If you look at them too long, you're like, whoa, that is big. But what can be managed? And what's actually a comfort? And even my daughters now, just last night, waking up in the middle of the night, wanting me to put on now a projection of stars into the ceiling. But still, wanting something to look at to make it feel like it's not this big black abyss inside of my bedroom when my parents close the door. I'd like to have something beautiful to look at. He speaks to us like children. He teaches us and treats us like children. Right? The intimacy of a mother who can take those stars. And here's the analogy. Here's the type. Here's this childlike similarity that's not actually reality. Is that we know we're not putting real stars up there. And act, real stars don't have five perfect points. And real stars don't simply just glow from a little bit of sunlight that comes through the window during the day. Those aren't real stars. Real stars are powerful and scary and all these things. But they're there and they're cute. And they bring comfort and light. They glow in the dark through the night. But see, that's the first layer of growth. Then the wisdom is, the wisdom is, as adults, with the word of God in our hand, the spirit of God in our heart, we read, we look, and then we realize this thing. That actually, the real stars aren't real. Those things up there are not actually light. They're types of light. First John says God is light. Those stars are actually more similar to glow-in-the-dark stars in a child's bedroom. See, those stars don't have power or energy emanating from themselves. Their light has a source. Their light is the God of all power and majesty. Those stars were meant for nothing more for us to look at and realize as small children looking for similarities and analogies to say, oh, he has put those stars there so that I would know there is he who is light. 
That these stars are only pointing me to him who is light. And then the scriptures come and say there is only one star, Jesus, who is the morning star, who is the light of all lights, and in him we have light, John says. There is no real light or knowledge or wisdom or beauty apart from him. And everything he's ever made is only just him making images of his beauty for you to see with physical eyes so that you could read Psalm 8 and go with the psalmist and say, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And we finally matured to realize that we've been looking at sticky-tack stars this whole time and not the one true glory of the beatific vision of approaching the eternal throne of God which awaits us all on that great white throne day of judgment. That will be the time where you first ever really see light. For in the first day, God created light. But in the fourth day, he made the stars. I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, see, the moon and the stars that you have placed on my bedroom ceiling. That's all this is. So majestic and infinite that God in all his power, he doesn't make the stars which a sledgehammer or a mallet. No. For something is majestic and powerful, greater than our whole world in which we've lived our whole life, of nuclear power and bombs exploding every moment, that he has to use his pinky for. And he places it up there for you to look at. This is a childlike wisdom. That is, to see the whole world as the product of our Father's hands. See, his decree of creation is the detailedness, the delicacy, the dexterity he has for your life. That is, though it is true that God is majestic and his name is high above the heavens in all the earth, it is also equally true that he will stoop down to you and that he will adorn you with the stars by his little fingers. That he will deal with you gently. That he will bring the dexterity of his own digits down to you. That you would say, why do we have fingers? Just to, med just to meditate on that for the fact that it is a reality of God that he can be gentle with you. The way you can be gentle with a child. The way you can feed and care and beautify. That he is not only just raw power, but he is controlled gentleness. That all the anxieties and worries of your life. That there is no frame that he knows that you are but dust and he will not destroy you. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out. Your trials, oppressions, disasters, and everything, they all can be dealt with by the gentle hand of God. To go to him in prayer with every concern, knowing that as he rules the cosmos, he brings you his very gentle and intimate hand to heal. You have to know that about the Lord, that he heals. And he cares so much even for little mouths, not just little fingers, the little mouse. He says, Majestic is he in his glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants. That's how God likes to do it. Particularly even on Mother's Day. Out of, it says, the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength for yourself. He can rule the world with a rod of iron. He literally says he will in Psalm 2. 
But there's also another way to rule the world. That there is a particular power and strength to the voice of a child. The strength of praise, the same word is praise. That is, the strength that comes out of the mouths of infants and babies is the power that God has in singing to the world. That he has dominion, that he is king. That all the rebellious humanity and all the angels of demons will know that through the voice of a small child, it is actually his singing, his praise, what we do here gathered on a Sunday, that it is a spiritual reality that we are establishing strength for the kingdom of God. That he could come in and wipe it all out, but he would rather build it up through the smallness and the intimacy and the gentleness of children. And then of course to us adults he says, and you must be children too. Sing like a child. Sing like no one's watching. Sing as if it's true that he's created you. Sing as if it's true that he redeemed you. It's beauty. There's power to that. His kingdom is built on such things. That is the whole point of Psalm 2. That he made his king to be what? It says in Psalm 2 as we saw, I will tell of the Lord's decree, the king that should rule all the world, you are my son. That is today I have begotten you. That is, the king that should rule the world is like a son, like a child to God. And so knowing that this is God's plan, knowing that what he is like, in his absolute transcendence, but very close, intimate knowledge of us, the psalmist transitions to actually ask the question then, what is man? If it takes the very dexterity of your decrees to create the stars, how could you have the time for me? What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. So the answer is the crown. If God was oriented toward raw power, the stars are more valuable than us. If God was oriented towards size and greatness and beauty. The galaxies are absolutely mysterious. But see on us, there is a crown. A crown that is placed upon the head of humanity. And this crown is for glory and honor. That is, the psalm is saying, you have been made lower than the heavenly beings. The word there is Elohim, which is just a simple Hebrew word for God. That you have been made lower than the gods. Hebrews 2 defines these as spirits. For it is not to the angels that God has subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 2 quotes this Psalm, Psalm 8, I mean Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? For you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. That is, these gods that we are below. A God is not just necessarily Yahweh. It's a finite spiritual being with some type of power that's unseen. And they are majestic. And when an angel is exposed to a man or woman in the Bible, they fall on their face in fear. They are powerful beings. They're kind of like the stars. While the ancients connected the angels to the stars so closely. But they are only a little bit higher than us. And that these angels have not been given this crown of glory and honor. That is, the dominion or dignity of dominion. The psalm goes on to say, 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts and the field and heaven and the fish of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven. So the glory and honor of our life is that there is, and particularly for you and I to know, domains, spheres of sovereignty that are delegated to you. They are yours. They are no one else's. That if you exercise them, it is to the glory of God. That all of this was to the glory of God. That if you can run your life well, that is, work hard, save money, build things, give it away, make lots of food, make extra food, have people over, cut the grass, pay the taxes, vacuum the car, domain your life, Take responsibility for your life. Make everything beautiful in your life. Be like God in your life. As he sorted the whole world and brought the seas to a point to go no further. Have an exercised authority over your life. That you are to be made in the image of God. To be like God. That that brings him great praise and glory and honor. To be the best version of yourself that you can be. To take responsibility at every turn and every domain in which your hand touches. To cultivate the earth and to be like God in all his beauty and virtues. To be disciplined, dignified, healthy, wealthy, and wise. The things we necessarily kind of want that we all call idols, they're not really bad. Go get it. Go do it. Live the American dream. But don't idolize the American dream. Be like God and do everything you can within your domain. But the problem of it all, the problem of it all, is that when we do that, we are nothing like him, we know. And actually all the world's problems are just looking for this. The ideal description in this psalm is a humanity that is actually under God's sovereignty. Mastering the world under the master of the world. This crown, and closing on this, is the whole point of the problem. We have, or had, been given a crown of glory and honor. That crown has fallen from our head. The whole point of the Psalms is you can almost think of every Psalm as an image of a crown in which it is sung or read And it's almost as if the crown is just placed on every person's head that comes by. To see which one fits. To see where the crown does not slip. Who is the righteous one? Who is the one that rules the world? Who is the blessed man? Who is the one that has dominion over all his proper effects? The crown is heavy. The question is, how heavy really is the crown that rules the world? When you connect the man of Psalm 8 to the man of Psalm 2, that the man of Psalm 8 is to exercise dominion over all things, and the man of Psalm 2 is to rule the whole world and all the Gentile nations, the question then becomes, as the Psalms emerge, this is a heavy crown. This is someone who has all authority and power. How heavy could that crown be? What neck could support it? What neck stands strong and righteous enough to support such a weight? Who has not faltered? Who has not twisted and turned? Who has not lost? As Romans 3 says, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which this crown is for the glory and honor. That is the crown that has fallen. It is not for us. Of course is Christ. There's a Reality I've thought about for a series of years. I want to invite you into as we close. The greatest king that they ever had was David. 
And he almost was like this man in Psalm 1, where everything he did or touched was blessed. And he won all his wars almost. And I've read this many times over and reflected upon it in 2 Samuel 12. It's right after David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Everyone knows this. Anyone who's ever the Bible knows this. It's the next chapter. 2 Samuel 12. Right after he did that, he had victory in war again. A nearby nation, the Ammonites, always oppressing Israel, were told that he fought against the capital city, Rabbah, and took it. And they took the crown from that Ammonite king, we're told. And they placed it on David's head. But it says, the crown weighed one talent of gold. And you'd read through and be like, okay. But then you go and look how much a talent weighs. And you realize that it's 75 to 100 pounds. And then you read the verse again. And it seems to be an anomaly. It seems to be one of those verses that says, Now how does that go? They put a 100 pound gold crown on his head? We've all been crowned with glory and honor. And David, right after sinning and falling, the crown just doesn't make sense. The weight could be just its weight in the pounds that it's worth. More likely, it really does mean a generally accurate weight, that this was a crown that was 75 to 100 pounds. I like what the Cambridge Bible Commentary says is this. If this estimation is correct... It can never have been habitually worn and must have been placed on David's head only for a few moments, ceremonially, not in reality. Right after the greatest king fell in adultery and murder. Do you see? There is only one son of God. There is only one neck that will not snap under the weight of absolute dominion. The same one who upholds the crown upon his head. That is in Hebrews 2, Jesus, whose crown with glory and honor because of the suffering he has bore in his death for you and me to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He has the crown placed on his head and he can uphold that crown because by that same power he has always upheld the same world that everything he's ever made, he will receive glory for it. And that crown, no matter how heavy it will be, is for him. Not for David or you and I, as we know so all too well. But this is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, so that we might answer the question, who is God and who is man? It was always to bring us here. Dear Father God, we lift up your name and we praise you and thank you. Lord, that you have given us this wisdom in Jesus Christ.
Father, let him be our wisdom and our boast. Lord, help us to meditate upon the beauties of Jesus Christ, that we might be godly. Lord, that we might exercise dominion in our life, that we might be self-controlled and disciplined as you give us grace so that we would take all our crowns and all our accomplishments. And Lord, I pray that they'd be great, that we would accomplish great things, and then we would cast all our crowns at your feet at the end of this age. Dear Lord, please do this in Jesus' name. Amen.